Hi, this is Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. Uh, I am again with uh, Tim McIntosh for a second conversation on theater, acting, Shakespeare, and the cultivation of virtue. And we are kind of co-producing this podcast, so it's not just a podcast for The Christopher Perrin Show, but it's also going to be posted on Tim's podcast. So, Tim, why don't you introduce it? Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, I do a podcast hosted by the Searcy Network, which is kind of like, would, would you call the Searcy Institute kind of a cousin organization to what you do, Chris? Yeah. Something very, like that. Very close friend. Yeah. Maybe even mm-hmm. a sister organization. Yes. So yes. Um, the plays, the thing is a podcast on all things Shakespeare in our most typical format is to go play by play act by act within each play through the entire Shakespeare canon. And we, I think we're at number 28 now. So nine plays left to go, but we also do occasional shows like this where we'll do something that's not just discussion of the play, but we'll do, I had on, um, I've had on authors and uh, conversations like this about what Shakespeare has to teach us, uh, conversations about the history of Shakespeare. So the Plays the Thing podcast, that's where you can find, that's where this will be platformed also. Thank you. And uh, I want to remember to say as well that you can find Tim on classicalu.com where he has recorded a course live with five other students called Teaching Shakespeare Classically. Um, an excellent uh, show, I think, and you can see these students grow as under his tutelage. We recorded them in a, in a, in a local theater. It was just, just terrific. It was fitting that the, the theater that you guys rented to record that class was in downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and it was a refurbished church. It still had stained <laughs> glass. And it was so perfect. It was perfect in every way. It was perfect in every way. And part of the reason I think it was perfect is because I really do think from like the next most sacred space in the world next to, you know, a church sanctuary um, is for me, it's a theater. So to have them both in one for the recording of that class was just a little bit of magic. Yeah. If, there's some something to lament about a church having to close for any reason. However, right, 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 right. If it's going to it, close, that's <laughs> right. Better, better than that than some other things that we have observed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in this episode, you know, we we in our first episode we generally discuss the way that study of theater and Shakespeare um, is so meaningful and provides such great benefits to growing in virtue and humanity. Uh, and I, I really loved, uh, Tim, hearing some of your anecdotes and stories that just bring to life those ideas. Mm. And you mentioned how studying as a someone who loved basketball as a 19-year-old, uh, having studied under, under a, a kind of a frumpy 70-something-year-old right. fine right. arts professor slowly got to you mm-hmm. and changed you until you began to love that professor and what, mm-hmm. and what she taught. I had a similar experience. Really? I'm sure our listeners have had experiences with teachers who modeled something that created a transformation or change in disposition and maybe even changed the direction of your life or mm. study. Mm-hmm. When I went off to the University of South Carolina, 
my dad said, why don't you become a lawyer? And not knowing quite what to do, I said, well, that sounds good. And he said, well, why don't you study criminal justice? It'd be a good preparation for law school. So I declared my major in criminal justice and took a criminal justice course, 101. And I just, it was okay. But after taking that course, I thought, I, I don't want to do this for four years, I don't think. Meanwhile, I was taking Ancient History 101 with Professor Dolan, who also, I think, was about 70. Mm. He was about 6'4", an Irish-American, uh, probably weighed 250 pounds with silver hair to his shoulders and a big red nose. Oh, wow. And he would come into class. He would actually strut into class with a little TA following him holding maps, a little in comparison to his frame. Mm -hmm. And he would begin to lecture and sometimes bellow. At one time, I remember him throwing chalk at people who were not paying attention. At one point, I remember him writing a Greek word on the board in Greek. And he said something like this. Oh, this is a Greek word. I think it was the word polis. It's one of the most important words in, uh, in history. And you don't know Greek. In fact, <laughs> you don't know Spanish either, even though you've taken it for four years. You can't speak Spanish, can you? Well, this is Greek. And I remember at that moment thinking, I'm going to study Greek. Really? Yeah. I just thought, well, well I'm going to study Greek. Uh, and then later I thought, I think that was purposeful, him baiting us. And another point, he, there were some, some frat boys in the very back row who were just kind of talking and chatting while he was lecturing. And he became aware of this and just stopped his mm -hmm. lecture abruptly and started to glower and stare at these two I Frat love boys. it. I and love it. His whole face turned as red as his nose. He was angry, and he threw down the chalk, and gathered up his his notes, and just and what, looking the entire time at these two guys, walked out of the room. No with way. The, the little T A following him, and I thought, I want to major in history. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. This, this was educational theater. <laughs> That's right. I, 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 I want, this is, I didn't know exactly why. I just started to fall in love with history, and, mm. and I was enchanted by him. And I kept going, and then I ended up becoming a classics minor as, as a result uh, because of that one class, that one person. Chris, he sounds Falstaffian. He sounds like John Falstaff. Do I have the right picture in my yeah. mind? Yeah. There's even a, I think it's in, um, it might be Merry Wives of Windsor, where John Falstaff shows up again after he originally appears in Henry IV's part one and two. He has a page that kind of tracks him everywhere, who I typically, traditionally is played by a young man, you know, like 11 or 12. This, this is the exact picture that I get from this teacher that you were describing. <laughs> He was a massive man with a small-framed teacher's assistant who would carry maps in for him. Uh, it, was, it was theatrical, and it was actually in a, one of those small uh, uh, semi-circular rooms with, uh, with the inclined rising. Uh, oh, yes. So, so it was like a theater. Yes. It was like a theater in the round, and uh, he was on stage. I love it. I love I, I just have to interrupt you. My wife and I went to the Fringe Festival in Scotland for our honeymoon. That was, gosh, I'm embarrassed to say that was that was in May. No, no, no. Sorry. That was in August. We were married in May, went in August. And we saw a bunch of theater performances. It, the whole town of Edinburgh basically gets transformed into various 
modes of theater. And we, one of the best plays that we saw was in a 19th century anatomy classroom that is exactly as you described. Uh. It was a half circle, no, it was a three quarter circle with elevating seats. And it was fantastic. It was such a great place to see a piece of theater. It was great. So my question for you is, how is teaching like theater? Mm. In what ways does the theater or acting, performing, translate into other kinds of teaching, mentoring, or coaching in other settings besides an actual play? Well, if you're, if you're just saying words as a teacher, you're not really teaching. If you're just saying words as an actor, you're not really acting. I mean, you have to know how to engage your audience. And I think there's a false way to engage your audience. And then I think there's a true way to engage your audience. The false way of engaging your audience and the false way of acting, I think, is sort of gesturing what you think is appropriate for the moment. In other words, um, Macbeth is angry now. I know that these lines are Macbeth being angry. So I'm going to, I'm going to furrow my brow and I'm going to show my incisors and I'm going to shake my fist because those are the gestures that an angry person makes, right? I think audiences know that those are kind of um, pantomimed gestures and that's not real acting in some way. So it, it, accordingly, I think that a teacher who, how do you say this, Chris? You're gonna have to help me with this. A teacher who doesn't really believe in what they're teaching or who is kind of pantomiming knowledge, I think students will play along with you for a while, but I think they'll know that these are kind of like the, the empty gestures of education. Whereas now I, I'm going to come back to you, but I want to say also what I think is true acting, true acting. The best definition I've heard of acting is acting, acting truthfully under imagined circumstances. So if I'm playing Macbeth, I so deeply accept the reality of the world of Scotland in whatever it was, the 11th century, and these witches who are prophesying that I'm going to become king, I so deeply and fully give myself over to that imagined reality that really what I am as an actor is I'm just Tim being truthful in those circumstances. And so when Macbeth gets angry, in the play, and I know that the text is Macbeth being angry. Well, I'm actually getting a little bit angry, and I'm just spontaneously allowing what happens to happen within this imagined context. Um. So, so do you do you accept my kind of I don't know what we're going to call it my rubric for maybe false and true education. I mean, have you been in a teacher in a teacher's classroom and they so believe what they're teaching 
that you kind of reckon with it in a different way. And I want to put just one little add on to that. And then I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not supposing that if someone is teaching Descartes to be a good teacher, you have to fully believe in Descartes all the way. But what I do, what I am asserting is that if you're going to teach Descartes, even if you're not, even if you have sharp disagreements with Descartes, and you and I probably do, there's a way of teaching Descartes that you are not setting him up to be a figurine meant for destruction, that you actually are kind of like teaching him according to his own lights. And that, that I think I would call that kind of the equivalent of false acting. My response to that is to say, I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> uh-huh. Or I think I think, therefore, I think I am. Mm. Uh, Descartes, well, he actually says, I doubt, therefore, I am. Uh, what well, I, I like very much your definition of acting. Um, it reminds me, I heard someone else say it's... it's uh, Acting in such such a way as to make people believe that what is happening is real and mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. Uh, and it reminds me of the way that I think we can properly define even myth as well as good literature. True lies. You know, um, say the the myth of of uh, uh, Icarus flying too high. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. We we know that. He didn't actually have wax feathers, but that's not the point. It's it's a story that tells something that's very true about human experience. And myth, mythos was understood this way. There was a logos that was a part of the mythos. It was a true lie. And so somehow when we're teaching and acting, there's some human truth, some goodness that is revealed and made present. Could go back to our previous uh, podcast about something good, true, or beautiful being really present in a play or in or in literature, such that it catches on the soul of the reader, the student, and the teacher. Yes. And then we also talked about how there's a kind of communion or fellowship, uh, a participatory fellowship in a play, and I think also in a class when we're reading, and even with the author when we're reading Shakespeare. There's a sense in which Shakespeare slowly becomes an acquaintance and then a friend. So that, you know, people like me, who I love Chesterton. By the way, our, our viewers and listeners need to know that Tim and I both share a love of Chesterton, and he's mm-hmm. written a short play mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Chesterton that I saw performed. It was just so fun and good. But, okay, that's an aside. What I want to do now is read to you a passage from Augustine that touches on this and get your response to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a beautiful passage, and it's a passage that uh, came to me. Uh, it was first uh, Dr. Christopher Schleck who um, let me know about this small book that Augustine has writ- wrote called uh, "On the Instruction uh, on the Instruction of the uh, the Catechism of the Uninstructed," teaching those who are not who are are new students, new to the Mm -hmm. Christian faith in this context. But in this short little book, he ends up talking about the way in which the teacher and the student engage in a deep sympathetic fellowship uh, as they're learning together. And so I'm just going to read you this passage. It's remarkable, and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it as well. So here's a quotation from Augustine 
He says, once more, however, we often feel it very wearisome to go over repeatedly matters which are thoroughly familiar. Now, he's speaking to the teacher. Mm. Teacher often feels it's very wearisome to go over repeatedly matters which, are thoroughly, which we're thoroughly familiar with and are adapted to children. If this is the case with us, then we should endeavor to meet them, our students, with a brother's, a father's, and a mother's love. And if we are once united with them, thus in heart, to no less than to them will these things seem new. To us, no less than to them, will these things seem new. For so great is the power of a sympathetic disposition of mind that as they are affected while we are speaking, we are affected while they are learning. You mentioned this on a previous podcast, how you watching your own students performing Shakespeare affected you Mm. as the teacher. So we are affected while they are learning, and we have our dwelling in each other. And thus, at one and the same time, they, as it were, in us, speak what they hear. And we, in them, learn after a certain fashion what we teach. Is it not a common occurrence with us? I know. Isn't it amazing? Wow. But wait, there's more. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, You know, docendo discimus is the Latin phrase means by teaching we learn. And Mm. there it is. But he goes on and says, is it not a common occurrence with us that when we show to persons who have never seen them certain spacious and beautiful tracks, either in cities or in fields, which we have been in the habit of passing by without any sense of pleasure, simply because we become so accustomed to the sight of them, so familiar with them, that we find our own enjoyment renewed in their enjoyment of the novelty of the scene. Mm. Pause here for a moment. Remember when we went to the Gettysburg battlefield together? Yeah. yeah. I had been there before, but it was your first time. Yeah. I had this very experience. You were so enthralled that it made it new for me again. Mm. But to go on the last yeah, sentence, yeah. Gustin says this. And this is so much the more our experience of renewed enjoyment. So much more our experience in proportion to the intimacy of our friendship with them. Because just as we are in them, in virtue of the bond of love, in the same degree do things become new to us, which previously were old. What a passage. What a passage. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, we've all experienced experienced this as we've taught students and sometimes been students with good models, but Augustine puts words to it mm. so beautifully, and he did that 1,600 years ago. Yeah. Uh, how do you respond to that passage and relate so it to your own, your own experience? I want to make sure that I understand him right before I go on. Is, is, I'm imagining... Um, teaching a child the ABCs, which I know very well, and I've already done the kind of hard learning at an early age of learning my ABCs and learning how they are, they are assembled into different combinations to make words. But my wife and I are expecting a child in a couple of months, and I'm imagining the time that I and Galen are teaching the ABCs to our kids. 
there's probably nothing particularly exciting about reviewing the the alphabet for us like cuz we know it so deeply so well but there's something about presenting it to our child and having our child light up and understand and say the letters in order that is beautiful and it kind of like maybe it the question that i have is is augustine saying you will delight because of this other person's newfound knowledge and delight in the material? Or is Augustine asserting you might also have a delight by revisiting something that you know so well? Or is he saying both? It seems like he's definitely saying the former. Is he saying the latter as well? I think he is. I think he's, uh, you know, this is his last illustration of like passing through uh, a town or a countryside uh, and that you've become so familiar with uh, mm. that you stop seeing it for how beautiful it is. Uh, you're given new eyes by your student to see once again how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but 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 he talks about so yes, I think things that have become very familiar can become novel to us again because they're novel for the student who comes to know them for the first time and has that kind of first-time experience of wonder. So our wonder is renewed. But he also speaks of this kind of mutual indwelling, that we begin to live in the student, and then the student begins to live in us. Let me just repeat mm. what he says there. It's, it's so beautiful. He says, For so great is the power of a sympathetic disposition of mind that as they are affected while we are speaking, and we are affected while they are learning... We have our dwelling in each other, mm. and thus at one and the same time, they as it were in us speak what they hear, and we in them learn after a certain fashion what we teach. So, you know, there's this paradox. It's as if in this moment of sympathetic learning together before a great text, mm-hmm. the, the teacher becomes a student again. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a student just means someone who loves learning. A studium means eagerness for, for knowledge. So the teacher, in one sense, is just a more mature student. Right. But the student is just an immature teacher. Yeah. Because the, te- the student begins to teach us. Yeah. And you, you described it so beautifully when, maybe you should just rehearse it again, but when you described that 17 and 18-year-old, those two, seven, those two yeah. students, yeah. Acting, uh, re- acting a loss and reunion in Winter's Tale, you saw them performing... And even though you know that place so well, and maybe have performed it, yeah, it affected you, and oh. they began to speak in you. Yeah, they began to dwell in you. You had a mutual indwelling. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to tell a story about Saxon of Saxon textbooks, and I wonder if it fits what Augustine is saying. So, I've heard this secondhand, so this might be apocryphal, but let's. The story behind it makes a it lot might be of sense. A, it might be me. a true, a true lie. Tr- that's exactly right. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> Apparently, um, Saxon's method was repetition, and that you would kind of repeat the exercises before you had a deep understanding. You might know better than me. I'm sure you do, Chris. Whether or not that's is is that accurate? That Saxon was like rep- repetition heavy. Yeah, there's what they call a lot of. Sp- spiraling review in the Saxon oh, okay. curriculum. Okay. But yeah, lots of review and repetition. So Saxon 
is up at the whiteboard and he's writing down this really long equation that takes the whole of the whiteboard. And he's done this hundreds of times with thousands of students. And he gets to the end of this equation, which he knows, you know, he knows what the answer is going to be. And he writes it down and then it strikes him. This is true. And he stands back from the whiteboard and he says, oh my goodness, this is true. And of course he knew it was true. Of course he knew it was true before that moment, but there was something about the kind of public performance with his students of doing this equation over and over that he saw it in a way that he had never seen it before. And, and, and it had just sort of struck him. And when I think of that story, I think if he had done that in the privacy of his study, that would not have happened. There was something about being in the classroom with his students, even his like presumably silent students in that moment, that he's kind of performing for and with them that caused him to see for the first time some deeper truth behind the equation. Do you think that Augustine would hear that and say, yep, that's what I'm talking about? I think it is in the same category. Uh, just the presence of students is changes changes the entire affair. Mm. Uh, much like our previous discussion about the difference between watching a film and 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 a play in which you are a live member of the audience, right? Unless you happen to be a dead body there, and in that case, you're you're you're, you're not. But most often, if you're there, you're alive. So here, here's. An illustration from a mathematician that I know named Bill Carey, a mm. great mathematician, a math educator, and classical educator. He points out that, you know, on a, for any given equation or, say, proving, uh, you know, geometrical, uh, a geometric theorem, say, uh, you, there are lots of, lots of roads to get to the right answer. And so often a, a, a math teacher can be solving an equation, but another student, this has happened to Bill, where He'll, he'll, he'll present a problem and say, prove this, and then the students go to work at it. And sometimes he'll describe groups of students working in small groups, uh, five or six different uh, ways to get to the solution. And he's described students who will come up to him proposing a particular way, and, and in one case I remember him saying, no, that's not going to work. That's, that's the, I wouldn't try that. Mm. But the student was convinced, no, I think there's something here. I'm going to keep going. And proved it in a in an unusual way that was also true, but really? then shed, well, novelty, a new way of coming, of seeing the same truth, of getting to the same destination. So Bill is regularly being taught by his students, and sometimes in surprising ways. Sometimes students that he wouldn't expect would be able to do what they do, um, do those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah. How, how interesting. I... I I'm going to tell a similar story. Galen and I had dinner last week with uh, some friends of hers in Colorado. And one of them, a guy named Scott is, I think he's a nuclear physicist. So if you're going to ask me to like recount the intricacies of what he said, I will never be able to do that. But he said that he was doing his, I think he was doing his master's work, maybe his PhD work. And he had a problem that he was trying to solve. And it was tremendously difficult. 
And somehow he kind of stumbled upon a solution for it. It was such a complicated problem that he went to his advisor and showed him the results. And his advisor did not believe him. He thought that he had somehow kind of like cheated. And no, he hadn't cheated. He had kind of stumbled on it, but he had gone this very roundabout way of solving the problem. So then having solved the problem, he kind of retroactively figured out the path by which he solved the problem. And he said, the kind of, man, I'm really something because this is just not my field. He went online and he asked a few people, hey, if you were going to try to solve this problem, are there existing um, ways of finding a solution? And people said, oh, yeah, there's an old way from the 1950s. And, and it, it kind of had to do with the development of radar. And he went back and he looked at the development of radar and he said, oh, that's what I did to solve the problem. I just didn't know that that's what it was. And so he kind of, he did not follow the existing path. He followed some path that really had not been blazed. So he thought, and then retroactively say, said, oh yeah, I did this thing that was done in the 1950s. I just didn't know that it had been done before. And I just think what a fascinating story. Like this, this kind of follows what you were saying about the student. Like, I think there's something there. I don't know what it is, but I think there's something there. That's exactly what Scott did. And then they, they had the conclusion of the stories. They brought in this big expert and the expert came in. And he's like, absolutely. That is the solution. You just did it. And Scott was like, yeah, I couldn't even tell you how I did it the first time through. Mathematicians, uh, I'm. This is my field either, so I just know this from talking to others who know. <laughs> but mathematicians uh, often stumble into solutions creatively, uh, mm. playfully. Uh, Bill and Robbie Jane and others talk about how mathematics is often the history of puzzles, proofs, and play. Uh, huh. And and there's creativity in the way mathematicians uh, come to these kinds of solutions, and they write papers. Yeah, uh, and and they also use humor, uh, and the more degrees you have, the more jokes you're supposed to be able to tell, according to Bill Bill Carey. Really, really. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a tradition of what, what do mathematicians do? Uh, they don't do endless problems sets at the back of a book. They they write papers. They 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 try to solve puzzles and do proofs and they play. You recommended a book to me by Edith Wharton, on is it just called The Greeks? It's not her mythology book. Is it just called The Greeks? Yeah. In that book, and you might have pointed this out to me, so I want to give proper credit. I know that Edith Wharton says it, but you might have steered me to it. She asserts that the first human civilization that engaged with play as a serious endeavor were the Greeks. And so she points to the games in the Odyssey as an example of these competitions between soldiers, ex-soldiers, and they are just enjoying themselves being children again, in a way. And she makes, she, she points out, listen, it, it can't be a coincidence that this is the first human civilization that seems to have sort of, for lack of a better word, codified play or taken play very seriously. And they are still to this day upheld as one of the most incredible civilizations in the history of humankind. 
there has to be a relationship between the seriousness with which they took play and their incredible advancement. And that makes so much sense to me that those two things would be paired together. Yeah, well, you're touching on a really important topic, in my opinion, uh, well, the Greeks generally. Uh, but play, uh, which, by the way, in Greek, one of the words for play is paideia, mm. very similar to the word paideia. Paideia, mm. you know, pais paidos in Greek means child. It lives in our word pediatrician, you know, a physician who treats children. And pedagogy, which uh, mm. literally in Greek means to lead a child. Uh, even the word encyclopedia has pais paidos in it. It means a cycle of studies that you would take a child through. But paideia meant what children do. They play. Mm. When, mm. You a, when you see a, a pais running around, what is, what is it? You know, they, they play imaginatively. They reenact literature that they've heard. Um, they're 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 involved in games and competition and so forth and the rules can change and there's magic and time travel and all of yeah. that. Yeah, still the case today, isn't it? The yeah. Romans by the Romans, by the way, called one of the one of their words for children was liberi, which literally renders as the free ones. Mm. <laughs> when mm. children are somehow in a special way free when they're at play. Yeah, but the Greeks took play seriously even into adulthood. Mm. The word paideia means in the Greek word is the Greek word that means education, right? And that is what you do with a child to fully mature that child. But part of the education of a child, part of paideia is paideia. So, uh, but they also believed in leisure mm. and music and the muses. And the word for leisure is, of course, skole. So, and then they believed in theoria, this idea of thinking contemplatively about what might be. Mm-hmm. So you see this in the Socratic dialogues and so on. Um, you see playful explorations mm. of, say, in the Meno, uh, can virtue be taught? What is virtue? Do we have pre-existing knowledge? Uh, they would think and explore these things, and they had the leisure to do it. To do so, yeah. Yeah. What do we call theater? I'm going to a play. I, I would just think that somewhere, I mean, I don't know the history of that word, but but that's exactly what it is. You know, so much of rehearsal for someone who's, for an actor who's in a play is you're trying things. You, you're accepting the imaginary circumstances of the play and you're trying things. I think my character would want to do this. I think my character would want to do that. And the very best plays maintain this kind of balance between the needs of the story, the text, and the kind of live playfulness of the actors and the best directors. I want to say, I want to wonder if this is analogous to the best teachers allow both of those things to exist in like the full tension. In other words, a great director knows that she's got a story that she needs to tell for the audience. And if it, and if the story isn't told well by the actors, if the actors just show up and do whatever they want to do while, you know, saying the words of the text, well, you don't really have a story then. And your audience is going to be confused and frustrated at the end of the evening. But if she knows she's got a story that she needs to tell 
And she knows that the best way to get there is by giving her actors the most play that she can allow for the discovery of the emotional and intellectual truths within the play. That's when plays really just start. They jump off the page and an actor, excuse me, an audiences go. And at the end of the evening, they are so moved because real life came into the theater that night. And directors, the best directors that I've worked for have allowed for both of those things. We've got to stick to the truth of the story. We've got to stick to kind of like this, this, the apparatus that is the story. And at the same time, we've got to allow enough freedom for the actors, enough play from the actors that they can bring their whole selves to it. There's gotta be, there's gotta be a kind of analogy there for the classroom, Chris, isn't there? Uh, I think there is. Uh, we have to play in the classroom too, reading a text or doing history, or as we just mentioned with mathematics, mathematics is, involves play. Yeah. But, but before we go there, you, you prompted something when you, you just made this a comment about the Greek word for play. Mm. Because theoria is that word that means contemplation, and it, you know, mm. it means to see something, a theory. Something you know, we're trying to understand. We're trying to speculate. We're trying yeah. to understand or see. So the the Roman translation, Latin translation for theoria is usually contemplatio, to contemplate. Mm. So th the Greek word for th for theater is something like theatrico. It, mm. It's it's something that is seen, but but. When you are seeing, you're not just seeing with your literal eyes, you're seeing with your mind's eye. You're trying to see or understand some truth of humanity, right? So often we still use this kind of phrase in English. When we come to understand something, we often say, I see it. Mm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, see, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I see what you're saying now. How do you see what someone says? You Don't you hear? No, but uh, the eyes are our most immediately perceptive uh, sense organ. Yeah. So we often use our metaphorically our sense of seeing for for understanding. So at a play, there, there's there's contemplation occurring. Mm. Uh, you know, our, in our previous episode, we talked a lot about this. How you know a play is helping you to understand or see something about human experience, so that it becomes your own, so that you yeah. possess it. So yeah, the theater is a place where we contemplate our humanity as well. Yeah, yeah. I never, I've never made that that etymological connection between theoria and theatrico, right. but there it is. That's so cool. I want to go back to um, what you were, we, we were talking earlier in this podcast about learning from our students. And I just want to, I underwent a kind of like pedagogical change about halfway through my career at Gutenberg College about so that I taught there for nine years and I think the first four or five years um, I had kind of a plan of attack when I would show up with my students and by midway through my career there I completely changed my plan of attack so Gutenberg was much like St. John's College which you've done advanced work at it was it's almost entirely discussion-based classrooms so um, when we would teach classics, we would show up with, you know, a dozen to 25 students and the professor's jobs 
was to lead the discussion. When I first started teaching at Gutenberg, I would kind of map out the questions that I wanted to ask when I showed up in the classroom. And I always wanted the first one to be a doozy, you know, like really get the students deeply involved, some penetrating question about the symposium or what have you. But I found that it just never, I think I was trying to engineer discussion too much and discussion is just too sprawling to actually presume any sort of control over it. I mean, I'm exaggerating for the sake of the point, but halfway through my career, I stopped showing up with a question that I would lead out our discussion with. And I would just show up and I would say, what do you, you know, I would usually pick one or two students and I would say, start us off. And I learned it from a more, um, a veteran teacher at Gutenberg, kind of a, a brilliant classroom teacher, David Crabtree, he would show up and he would say one word, he would say, go. And the <laughs> students would say, oh, okay, okay, it's on me now, I've got to come up with it. And what I discovered was that what the students, the questions that the students were asking of the text, you know, maybe it was Locke or something like this, were so different from where I was starting because I had been at this longer and I was kind of wanting to go in, you know, more advanced directions, building on what I had previously learned. Students weren't there yet. You know, they were just, this was their first acquaintance with Locke, maybe their second acquaintance with Locke. And so giving them the freedom to drive the car at the beginning always went in better directions than where I had planned to drive the car every single time. And I would oftentimes walk out of those classrooms having gotten to know Locke. Actually, I got what I originally wanted to build on my knowledge base better in the second form of teaching than I did in the first form of teaching, which is a, a kind of a brutal irony to wake up to that all of my plans for all these brilliant questions that I was going to ask weren't really as fruitful as letting the students actually drive the questions themselves. It calls to mind Augustine's comment about walking by familiar scenery mm. with your students, right? Uh, when you're doing that, it's probably best to let the students comment on the scenery yeah. rather than you, who are so familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, because... Yeah, they're going to see and observe things that you might have forgotten, maybe for, forget to see. Um, I, I, have a, I have an acquaintance who is a, a Hebrew professor, um, Fred Putnam at Eastern University, and he says, I know Hebrew so well, you know, he's in his, you know, he's probably approaching 70, he's been teaching Hebrew for so long, he says, I'm not the best teacher, best teacher to teach it anymore mm. to new students. He's just kind of acknowledging this problem. Yeah. It's better for one of my, my grad students to teach Hebrew because they're closer to what it's like to be learning it for the first time. He says, frankly, I, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I think that Augustine would challenge Fred and say, well, but if you taught first-year students, um, it could become new again to you. Yeah. Right? So yeah. there's um, this calls to mind what some have called 
the curse of knowledge. Yes. When you, when you know something so well, what, you think, well, that's great. You really, you really know, uh, you know, one of John Locke's treatises on government so well right. that you're just like, I, you know, I could teach this anytime, anywhere. I don't even need to prepare. Right. Uh, I know what questions to ask. Uh, there's something that's dangerous about that. So how do we? How do we? How does that become fresh and new to us again? Well, through our students. Yeah. And so one way you learn to deal with that potential temptation is to pitch the opening questions to your students and say, yeah. what, do, what do you think of this scenery? Yeah. Uh, and then maybe they're calling it up for you again. And let me share with you, uh, if you haven't heard this, it's kind of a funny experiment. It's apparently some psychologist conduct, conducted an experiment that shows the curse of knowledge. It goes this way. There's a, a receiver and a sender in a room. And the the sender has on a pair of earphones and is hearing a very simple melody like the happy bir- the happy birthday song okay da 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 and then and then what the sender does is tap out the rhythm for the receiver who does not have headphones on and so it goes something like this if i was a sender i'd hear that yeah. tune in my ed- headphones and i'd do something like this Well, then they would ask the sender to try to predict uh, what what the likelihood would be for the receiver to be able to tell what simple melody that was that you were tapping out. Okay. And the senders would regularly think a very high percentage. Oh, a happy birthday song. Everybody knows that. It's... Should be simple. And But what percentage of the time were they correct? Very rarely. And, the, and they concluded that when people are really familiar with something and trying to teach it to someone else, they think it's easy to learn. Mm. They think it's going to be a simple matter mm. because they've forgotten what it was like when they had to learn it. So yeah. an, an illustration would be the, you know, the stereotypical math professor who's very smart at math and is quickly going through how to solve an equation. It's very simple, don't you see? And he quickly writes it out on the board and says, think, done. Yeah. And, and nobody follows him. Right. Because he's forgotten, maybe he was too smart, he learned really quickly, and he's not the average person, so he's right. not the best teacher. At any rate, so yeah. what do we do with that? What do we do with this yeah. curse of our own familiarity? I remember one of the things that I have learned from Andrew Kern, your friend and mine, is that he, how emphatic he is about beginning with what the students already know. And to do that, you have to know what they know. I, I don't mean, what do I mean? I mean, you have to kind of know where on the record to drop the needle to use an old antiquated technology reference. If, if you're going to teach, oh gosh, about Socrates, well, you have to find out what the students already know about Socrates. And so it seems like the practical first thing to do in every teaching occasion is to find out where your students are in their knowledge and to begin just a little bit back from that instead of racing forward with a deep dive on the symposium or whatever you know of Plato's dialogues it is that you're teaching, first find out where students are. I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story about this, Chris, and this is going to be, this is my ringing endorsement of 
classical education. This is parents, if you're out there laboring over the task of doing classical education, let this be an encouragement to you. While I was teaching at Gutenberg, I got a call from another a, a Christian college down the road. I'm not going to mention them, the name. Their teacher had been diagnosed with cancer. She had to go undergo treatment. Could I take over her writing class for freshmen and sophomores just to kind of like, you know, cover her? Absolutely. So I went in. First day, I did a little diagnostic because I had learned enough from Andrew Kern, start where the students are and go from there. So I wanted to know where they were as writers. I had a total between two classes, very small classes, probably a dozen students total. I assigned them a one page argument paper. I was like, just convince me of one simple point. And I gave them a few ideas. They turned in their papers a couple of days later and I read them. And with two exceptions, the papers were dreadfully awful. I mean, they were, it was, it was frightening that these were freshmen and sophomores in college with two exceptions. These students, these two exceptional students wrote clear copy, made a clear argument, supported the argument, you know, wrote a conclusion. I was like, wow. Okay. What do we do here? there's a little more of the story. So what I resolved was the biggest obstacle that I could see was the students were not writing simple declarative statements like um, John walked to the store. Instead, it would be filled with all of these filler clauses like while wearing a red and white shirt and stumbling over cracks in the pavement, John walked to the store. And so I was like, let's just get back to simple declarative sentences. And to do that, I thought, well, let's just make sure that we're starting with a subject and verb. This, 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 this fills me with so much pain, Chris, recounting the story. Let's, re let's just recall the parts of speech class and let's go from there. And I'm thinking these are freshmen and sophomores in college. Everybody knows the parts of speech, right? I get up to the board the next day after I'd gotten their papers and I wrote a, a handful of simple declarative statements sentences on the board. And I asked them to come up and just label them, you know, subject or noun, verb, preposition, et cetera, et cetera. Chris, they couldn't do it. They could not do the parts of speech. The only two people who could do the parts of speech were these two students who wrote really good papers. Class ends. I go to these two students and I'm like, Hey, tell me about your education background. I was classically educated. I was classically educated. And I was like, of course you were. Of course you were classically educated. Of course. And then I said, I need you guys to do me a big favor. I need you to teach class next time. Because I don't know where these students are. I only know that they're struggling to write these papers. So I think we're going to do a crash course in parts of speech and sentence construction. That's where we're going to spend like the first half of this semester. And the next time, the next class, these two students, classically trained, got up there and did, I just gave them a rough outline of what I want to cover. They taught the class. I sat down in the classroom as if I were a student and we all moved forward and it was brilliant. And I never could have done it. I mean, I'm just imagining now if I was trying to teach what I thought was going to be a freshman level 
writing class for, yeah, college students, where I would have started had I not known where they were, I would have been way on down the road and it we would have wasted so many classroom times because the students would have been like, what's a part of speech? What is a part of speech? What's a noun? What's a verb? So that's, that's for me, that's kind of first step to dealing with the, the curse of knowledge. You're, you're getting at two things. One is uh, taking, yeah, take, get, getting oriented, putting, putting students on some kind of a map of knowledge and yeah. knowing, being, being conscious of that. But in so doing also being, trying to become self-aware, mm. be aware of, of your, of your own maybe over familiarity. Yes. Yes. With certain, certain ideas and skills and being, and working against that because you have to teach students where they are mm-hmm. and bring them along step by step, as Andrew would say. Yeah. So that's important, but you did, you touched on something else, which is, well, um, the older teaching the younger, you might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old one room schoolhouse mm-hmm. did this really well and did it great effect with great effect. And it, it's 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 uh, tying into that maxim by teaching we learn. Mm-hmm. Um, one reason to do what you did was not only first of all. It showed the entire class that we're all learners together. Even you can yeah. sit down with them. We're always all students. You're still learning, and you can even learn from your students. Yeah. And we're back to Augustine's indwelling again, where they teach, you know, they speak what we teach in them, they teach back to us, and it creates this very virtuous circle of mm. ongoing, well, renewal. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think, so when in our classrooms are we giving opportunities for the students to be the teachers? Uh, in a good Socratic-led, you know, good Socratic seminar, that does happen. Yeah. But there even are times, like you pointed out, when you would actually make an assignment and say, I want you to present to our class, you know, next class, do this, do that. Why don't we do that more? I know. I wonder why we don't do that more. It's kind of like, it's life without a safety net, maybe. Yeah, and so it might seem contradictory because when you first said, so I stopped preparing questions, uh, mm. someone might think, well, gosh, Tim, after you know several years of teaching, you just got lazy. So <laughs> right, right. why should I prepare questions? Let the students ask the questions. Right. But that's not what it was at all. But it can be misinterpreted that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to pivot to a different point, if you don't mind, is yeah. maybe we get to the the next part of this episode. Um, in various ways in our conversations, we've touched on the way in which theater and reading uh, great playwrights like Shakespeare can change a student. Mm-hmm. In our previous episode, we asked a question, you know, we, we, we were trying to answer that question, what will Shakespeare do for me? And you answered it so well. Um, yeah, what, what, what is it about studying theater or performing theater? What does that, how is it in sympathy with the other arts that we're teaching in a classical curriculum? How, how else is it in sympathy with the skills that a good teacher needs? Mm. Like, why would it benefit a classical educator to have a theater background or to participate in theater? Mm-hmm. or to go to the theater, or to read 
good playwrights. How is it of a piece? You know, often we'll say things, we'll make athletic metaphors. You know, like when the boys are out there on the soccer field, they're learning to play together, listen to mm -hmm. one another, pay attention to one another. That's what should happen in history class too. Yeah. Uh, you know, they learn to be good classmates even while they're learning to be good teammates. Yeah. So how would you make analogies for how theater does something similar? I'm going to go to sports also. I have a friend who... Um, runs a, a sporting program, like an after-school sporting program. And he said, I'll tell you what the best thing about sports is. The best thing about sports is when you practice poorly, you suffer immediately. When you practice well, you benefit immediately. In other words, um, let's imagine a typical you know, classroom setting in which we prepare for two months for our history exam before we take that exam. That means for two months, we're sitting in the classroom, we're reading, we're discussing, what have you. And then two months later, we find out if we knew the material. Two months is a long time to wait to see if you know the material. And what this guy was saying was, if you, in, in sports, you find out whether or not you've prepared well enough the day that you play a game or the day that you practice against your you know, teammates or something like that. And you get immediate rewards or immediate punishment from that. I think, I think um, theater is the same way. And I'm thinking a, a good actor prepares, 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 prepares so that when they get to the stage and we're performing, it's just play you don't even have to work anymore because you've worked so hard up until then. So what I see all the time with students is nobody likes to memorize lines. Nobody likes to memorize lines. It's the worst part about acting by a factor of 10. But if you don't, if you don't work every day, little bit by little bit, then you suffer the cost every time you have to go rehearse or perform those lines. So I think like with sport, there's a, there's an immediacy of the benefits of working hard and there's a, in an immediacy to the kind of punishments of not working hard that oftentimes we don't really see. We kind of have a time delay benefits and punishments for classrooms for, yeah, for students. Wow. So two responses. One is it sounds like behavioral conditioning. Oh. Re rewards and punishments. But I know it's not that. It's really a right. kind of it's kind of the feedback that you need in order to to assess yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Right to know to know what you know. Uh and w when it comes to skill uh, on say on a soccer on the soccer field uh when you play against other 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 competitors you you put yourself on some kind of map again. It's mm -hmm. a kind of orientation. Here's where I, and it also can be inspiring one to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think this mm -hmm. is another thing about sports is that you're pointing at you're pointing this out. There's something called game day, yeah. right? And yeah. it's it's a little different than the way students will participate history exam day that occurs at the midterm. Right, uh, for some reason, students actually look forward to game day. Why don't they look forward to their 
history exam. Right, day. right, 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 right. Could we, could we call it history game day? Hey, game day is tomorrow. Are you guys re you ready for the history exam? So yeah. this starts to kind of call something forth about the problems we have with assessment. Yeah. Uh, assessment generally is done in ways that deaden mm -hmm. the, and don't inspire students mm -hmm. to ongoing knowledge because we're grading them and that's the way we're comparing them with marks that actually have cash value for scholarships and so on, and it creates an immense amount of pressure. So that's m maybe a related issue. Uh, it's a kind of a bugaboo issue, but uh, you know, the grading system as we have it is not a part of the classical tradition. Right. We didn't use right. a 100-point scale. We used words. We, we always assessed. This is so much of what your personal calling is about, is about scole restful learning, teaching from rest. And I can easily imagine that someone might hear me on this podcast talking about the kind of um, punishments and rewards associated with sport and with theater and think, this is the farthest thing from Scole I can imagine. But I, I really want to like underscore what you're saying. There is something about performing in a game and performing theater that if you work hard, there is nothing more exciting mm -hmm. about your being assessed mm -hmm. in the theater or on the field of play. And the fact that our students dread assessment, dread assessment might say more about our mode of assessment than it does mm -hmm. about anything else. Yep. I, I would agree with that. Uh, but let's not go there, or the, it'll be a depressing episode. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. There's there's a classical U course on assessment that folks might want to look at, where Andrew Kern uh, presents really uh, winsomely. But I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to list for you some virtues that we've touched on, yeah, and in in our own conversations over the years, uh, and I, and it's let let you respond to this list of virtues mm. that you have noted are produced by being involved in theater mm. and see which ones you want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, courage. Uh, sympathy with one's uh, classmates or friends. Poise and confidence. Uh, memory and delivery. The two canons of, two of the canons of rhetoric. We just mentioned memory recently. Patience. Diligence. Composure generosity you know, these are all virtues that we want to have in a student in any case but yeah. theater seems in some ways you know well positioned to to develop these virtues maybe from another pathway yeah yeah the list that you just gave me i just think oh i mean all of these are are exercised and tested in the theater. I think the one that I would most like to talk about is sympathy. Um, there's a famous passage in Merchant of Venice in where Shylock, um, who is a moneylender, and most importantly for the play, Jewish, He's Jewish living in a Christianized Venice. 
And I don't think that we are meant to see Shylock as um, a character to be esteemed. He's, he's a very difficult guy, and he is bent more than anything else on revenge. He wants revenge because this... Um, His pound of flesh. Yeah, he wants to exact a pound of flesh from the man that he lent money to because this man humiliated him publicly. And we can understand the drive for revenge, but it becomes all-consuming for Shylock. Now, that's the background. There's a monologue that Shakespeare gives Shylock in the middle of the play, and it's among the most beautiful, and I would say most poignant, in all the Shakespeare canon. And like that's saying something. It's one of the most beautiful and poignant monologues out of all of his beautiful and poignant monologues. And the gist of the um, monologue is, you look at me as a Jew, which in that time, you look at me as this ultimate outsider, lower than you, but am I not a person? Do we not share all of the things that you yourself have and esteem? Don't I have these things? And the answer is over and over and over, yes. The answer is yes. And it's this tremendously dignifying moment for Shylock. And it's a rebuke, I think, to a couple of the powerful, esteemed um, characters within the play, and it brings them just for a moment level. They are of equal value in the eyes of God. And that, that monologue is kind of um, the ultimate demand in sympathy for Shakespeare's audience. It asked of them because because Jewish people in Shakespeare's days would have would have not been esteemed and held to be um, citizens of equal value, and Shakespeare pushes his audience really hard. That I think today, I think this is a credit to the world that we live in. We hear it and we say, yes, of course, of course, that's the way that things ought to be. That's the way that we're. That's the kind of society that we're trying to live in. But that was not the case in Shakespeare's day, and so the first step toward, let's say it like this, I, I think I would say that the first step toward equal rights is first for those who are in a position of power mm. to make a first step of sympathy. Oh, Shylock is like me. He's not just these clothes that, he's, that he wears. He's not just this, this hairstyle that's different than mine, mm. but he is a person just like I am. You're, you're calling to mind a W.B. Du Bois who, in Souls of Black Folk, describes his own reading of Shakespeare and other great authors. And he says, when I, when I sit, sit beside Shakespeare, something to this effect, he does not flinch. Mm. You know, in other words, he's welcomed by Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is his comrade mm -hmm. and friend and inspirer as well, right? And so, yeah. and then you call to mind the, the, the strike of the sanitation workers, it was, it was in Montgomery or Memphis, who, hmm. who put on you know, all black. Right. Uh, 
held these placards out uh, during their nonviolent protests that said simply this, I am a man. Yeah. You know, in other words, here it is, 500 years later, am I not a man? Right. Uh, if you cut me, do I not bleed? Yeah, right. So that's lovely. That's the sympathy that, that travels from a great writer like Shakespeare right to great reformers and thinkers like the African-American Du Bois and then, you know, the civil rights movement here in the U.S. Yeah. But what about sympathy from student to student, mm. actor and actor? What happens when a group of actors, a group of students come together? Like, I saw it happen when you were oh, here man. in Harrisburg with those yeah. five students who had, uh, some of them had, ne they had never done Shakespeare and, and there were people who had not worked together in this way, and in the case of at least one student, she didn't know any of the other four. Right, right. I, it, it, that class, Chris, was wonderful for so many different reasons. For me, though, the, 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 the best moment in the whole class. And so we worked together, these students and I, for four days. Some of them, a couple, uh, three of them had some acting background, two of them had no acting background, and only one of them had any Shakespeare background. So we worked together and these students, I mean, talk about courage. On camera, you know, on camera, they are going through a course in which they know very, very little about and they gave everything. They gave their heart and soul to the project. And one of the very last things that we did is we started acting out full scenes from Shakespeare. And I remember um, Mercedes was going to play uh, Ophelia from the play Hamlet. And Isaiah is going to play Hamlet from Hamlet. Isaiah, Mercedes had some acting background. Isaiah had very little acting background and very little Shakespeare background. background. And the scene that they're going to perform is Hamlet breaking up with Ophelia. It is it is a, such a tragically sad scene because Hamlet loves Ophelia. Ophelia loves Hamlet, but because of the circumstances in the kingdom, they can't be together. So I pull Isaiah aside and I'm like, listen, buddy, you got to break up with your girlfriend now, right? And this can't just be rage because that's not what the scene calls for. It would be easy to just play Hamlet as if he's just mad at Ophelia, but no, he really loves her. So I need to see you being in love with Ophelia and also being pushed to your limits by the King so much so that you have to end the relationship. My man, Isaiah, I mean, he gave it everything that he had. It required so much courage. And at the end, I think his classmates knew his, his castmates, I should say, knew what he had given them, you know, and they honored it. They honored that he, it, you know, just risked himself, risked himself, risked humiliation of not performing well. He just, oh, it was so beautiful, Chris. It was such a beautiful moment. And that transfers into a Around around a table at a classroom, mm. right? There, there aren't there times when a student has to risk yes. himself to ask the question that maybe yes. he thinks is 
stupid and foolish or to offer a perspective of which he's not even sure yet. Right. And you know, how how do you create like you do this with your with the castmates? You create an atmosphere that's essentially welcoming, mm-hmm. hospitable mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. How do you do that when you're teaching mathematics or I, history or literature? I have a strong conviction about this, and I will say it at the beginning of um, my classes. And I try to be really vigilant about protecting this rule. Um, the rule comes from the truth that there's no argument against a sneer and there's no argument against an eye roll. So if we're imagining the student that you just set up, Chris, we're imagining a young man who wants to ask a question that he thinks might be maybe a little too rudimentary or it addresses a truth that's maybe inconvenient or not polite. And he's sitting there thinking, I probably shouldn't say this. I probably shouldn't say this, but I really need to say this. Let's imagine that that student summons the courage to say out loud the kind of ask the rudimentary question or the impolite question. The quickest way to get that, to have that student feel punished is by having the class, his classmates sneer or roll their eyes. Oh my, I can't believe. And so I would say at the beginning of the semester, those, those things, if I see you sneering or coughing or rolling your eyes at your classmates, you need to gird yourself up because it's not going to go well for you. I'm going to be, I'm going to be upset with you. And it creates hopefully a kind of freedom that we are all in this together. A classroom is, it's a team. And when the team bonds together, classes lurch forward. They're so fun because you feel you trust your classmates. You're not afraid. Courage takes a little bit less of a demand and it's a little bit more welcomed. And one more thing, and then I I believe in this so strongly. My my friend Marianne took a class on, um, gosh, it was something along the lines of kind of like brain circuitry in the classroom. And she told me this really fascinating discovery made by these scientists that um, when students are in a classroom and they don't know where, if they belong or not, like they don't know where they are in the hierarchy of the classroom. Every classroom has got a hierarchy. I just don't think there's any way around that. But if they feel insecure about where they are, there's a part of their brain that functions like radar And it is constantly, constantly, constantly scanning to see where they are in the hierarchy. And it's, if they don't feel comfortable, if they don't know where they are in the classroom, if they don't have kind of like a secure connection with their classmates or with their teacher, that radar that's going, that's always going around is occupying more and more and more of their mental space. And that's less and less and less mental space that's devoted to learning. Hmm. That is so interesting. Uh, we want to have fellowship. Mm-hmm. We, want, we, want, we want a secure fellowship and sympathy with our teacher and with our students. And when we don't have that, it's already distracting yes. to us. Yes. 
Well, back to Augustine again. Uh, yeah. He, you know, the student can teach the teacher and renew his own, the teacher's own understanding and appreciation for some truth or goodness or beauty. Yeah. But the, the students also teach one another. The, can you comment on that? The way, like you mentioned, when Isaiah, your man, yeah. uh, gave his all. Yeah. He gave, a, he gave a gift to the other castmates. Mm-hmm. How, how, what does that look like? How, how, and you said they, they honored him. Mm-hmm. So when you, describe what that's like. What, what, what was that gift? And how did they honor him? I, I think that he was vulnerable. You know, he, that's the gift that he gave is like, there's no way to play the scene unless I am vulnerable about how I feel. And I'll, I'll tell you how um, difficult it is to be vulnerable. One of the first things that I have to teach students is to stand with their midsection exposed. And I think that's because, so, so one of the hardest things to do on stage is to just stand with your feet shoulder width apart and your arms by your side. And, the re- and it doesn't sound like it'd be terribly difficult, but the reason it's so difficult is because I think there's just this kind of instinctive drive to cross your arms in front of your body, especially in front of your rib cage, where your heart is, to cover it up and to kind of just kind of like be a little bit protective of yourself. The trouble is the audience sees that and they, I think they sort of semi-consciously know that they're, that the actor is hiding a little bit and it feels like they need to hide. So that's one of the first things that we try to do for new actors is just say, Hey, listen, this is hard, but this is what a power position is. Shoulder width apart, arms by your side and let your midsection, let your heart be exposed physically, let your heart be exposed. And that's what Isaiah did both literally he did not cross his arms in front of his body and he let his heart be exposed and metaphorically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever we want to call it, he let his heart be exposed in the scene and his teammates, his classmates saw that and they cheered him for it. And they cheered Mercedes. Also, I'm highlighting Isaiah because he just did not have the background that Isaiah, that Mercedes had. Mercedes was wonderful in that scene. Um, she had done it before she had done something like that before, but man, for Isaiah to do it, just, you know, having, having just very little exposure to the theater and to Shakespeare, I just, he is always going to be like one of my, in my memory, like one of my real soldiers. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a model for the other students to do. The yeah. Same. If he yeah. can do it, I can, I do, can it. do it. Exactly. Yeah. So the student is becoming the teacher and the model for other students. And then, of course, I think this, this virtue is just trans, transferable across all disciplines and all life. Mm-hmm. So there'll be some time in Isaiah's future and present when he's called forth to do something uncomfortable that he hasn't done before, but that would be needful and helpful. Yes. And he can call on this experience and say, I, I can do that. Yes. I've done it before. Yes. So he can be in a, a math class and ask the obvious rudimentary question. Right, right. Uh, because he's, been, he's learned how to take those kind of risks. And I, I think that the teacher 
in some ways, it, like if a teacher can model what it looks like to ask the rudimentary question, right? It's different though when a student asks it. So if I ask it, hey, what exactly do we mean when we say two plus two equals four? Well, everyone will hear that. Everyone in the class will hear that as a rhetorical question because I am the teacher. I'm the top of the authority pyramid. I don't, I'm not really risking anything. But when Isaiah asks that rudimentary question, he's not asking it from the top of the pyramid. He's asking it from a place where like he just genuinely doesn't know. And so it means there's a greater threat to him, you know, socially to ask that question. And it, there's a greater possibility that it opens the door for his classmates to say, I too can ask those simple questions and not be afraid. So I think, I think for a teacher, the modeling is definitely important, but I think the other thing that a teacher can do in that situation is the safeguarding of the willingness to be vulnerable. And that for me is I don't allow sneers. I don't allow, um, eye rolls. I do not allow it in my classroom. It's like the only thing, but the only thing that you cannot do in my classroom <laughs> So I, I have, I think, a, a good question that can wrap up this episode, and it, it has to do with friendship. Um, we're touching on it already. Uh, in the, one of my previous podcasts, I, I did a kind of brief exposition or discussion of Aristotle's three levels of friendship that you can mm. you find in the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 8. And he says that there are three kinds of friends. The first is the friend who is useful to you. Hmm. And uh, we all have those kind of friends. Uh, like uh, I joke, the, the friend who's got a pickup truck. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody needs to have a friend who has a, <laughs> a pickup truck, unless you happen to have a pickup truck yourself. And the other kind of friend is a friend who is just is pleasant and pleasing to you. Mm. This could be someone who is just witty and funny or has traveled a lot and has great stories. Uh, and you just enjoy being around for the ways that he entertains and delights you pleasing to you. But then he says there's a third kind of friend, and this is the friend who is virtuous mm. and is a friend of virtue and, and leads you to become a better person yourself. Mm. And then he, he goes on to say that if you have a friend who's virtuous, which is the highest level of friendship to Aristotle, he'll also be useful to you, mm. and he'll also be pleasing to you. Yeah. So it, he implies that, therefore... You get find, the whole package. Find virtuous friends. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and you, just, you know, as you've been talking the, about these castmates, they became friends. Yeah. Uh, and and a good a good classical educator is trying to engender meaningful friendship uh, as we communally seek something true, good, and beautiful through a great text, say together. Yeah. Could you comment on what you've learned about theater, and then it, and then in teaching generally? about how good education is also an exercise in friendship. Yeah. I'll start with the latter first. Um, I would ask my students, in fact, I would beg them, because I say, this is what I'm going to ask for you is outside of my jurisdiction as a teacher, because it's about your free time, but I'm going to ask you to do it as your teacher. 
I would ask my students to not touch their phones or their laptops or what have you for a minimum of 10 minutes. I would love to have 30 minutes after the class ends because that's the time when students walk out of the classroom that I think the best learning takes place is when they're walking from class to either their next class or to the lunchroom or to their locker. And they're talking about what just happened in class. It's like you have all of the benefits of the momentum of the classroom, but the kind of like free playfulness of now we're just in conversation as friends about this, you know, and capitalize on that momentum. Let that momentum just carry you and your friends forward. You don't, it doesn't require any work. It's just fun, but you'll lose it if you're on your phone or on your laptop, you know, looking at YouTube immediately after class, you lose all that momentum and you lose the fun that you uh, can capitalize on in conversation. Chris, I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember the first part of your question. Oh, just in what ways does your experience in the theater or, or teaching generally, Yeah. Uh, how can it be seen as fostering friendship? I, I, I want to say first, that definition from Aristotle makes so much sense to me um, that my closest friends, all of them, I want to be like them in some way. I was spending time with my friend Seth in Colorado. I only get to see Seth a couple times a year. And I told Galen when I got home, I was like, man, whenever I am around Seth, I have so much fun. And I also want to be better. I just want to be a better person. Not because he's trying to instruct me to be better, but it's just, this is the pattern of his life. He wants to be better. He wants to be a virtuous person. He wants to be a better dad. He wants to be better, you know, and I just, I, it just encourages me down that same path. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, I think one of the mysteries of acting is that as an actor, when you're on stage with another great actor, you are so much better. Hmm. My friend Dan is one of my favorite actors and he and I in our lives had only been in like maybe three scenes together. And it occurred to me every time I'm in a scene with Dan, I am so much better. I think because he listens, he picks up cues, he knows his lines and he's so empathetic and sympathetic that he just makes me better. And that strikes me as like a one-to-one -one parallel for, for friendship. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Uh, I'll I'll cap off our episode with a a more mundane illustration, but you brought it to mind. <laughs> uh, I was the last man on the high school golf team mm -hmm. in high school. Music. Mm -hmm. I was the number five player, which means I wasn't that great. I've never broken eighty in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, one day on a tournament. Uh, um, None of the other players could come. I was the only one who could get to this one tournament. So I was the number one guy on our team. And 
had to tee off with these other high schoolers who were shooting in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and they all thought I was a number one player, too. This is great. I love it. So I shot the best round of my life. <laughs> you know, I just tried to hang with them uh, stroke by stroke, and they thought I was in their fraternity. If they had known that you had not never scored better than 80 before you showed up, how would you have played? Like if they knew your true nature as a, as a golf player. It, it would have changed things. Yeah. And so our expectations are important here. And when the teacher expects that you are a human being who can acquire virtue and believes that, and acts accordingly, kind of mm-hmm. like Dan treats you mm-hmm. as an actor on stage, you kind of rise to the occasion. There's a funny anecdote that's out there about, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's fun to say, uh, about the teacher who is assigned a class of really troublesome students mm-hmm. that nobody wants to teach. They've been troublesome all through high school. And she gets these group of kids, and she gets their files and reports, and she looks at you know their background and their files, and she discovers that each one in the class have very high IQs. Oh, wow. Extraordinarily high. Yeah. And she says to herself, these kids are goof-offs, but they're really gifted, smart kids. And she starts to teach them and calls them to what she knows they're capable of. That, uh, capable of. Yeah. And after the semester's over, these kids do remarkably well. Yeah. For the first time. And she's debriefing with the principal, and, she, and the principal's astounded. She said, what did you do? You've turned this class around. And she says, mm. well, I saw right here, I saw this, this you know, these, in their files, how, 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 how smart they were. Yeah. And the principal looks at that paper, and she says, these are their locker numbers. Oh, my goodness. It, so they didn't have, like, such high IQ. Oh, my goodness. They all had lockers in the same, same section, and they were in the high, high 100s. So, uh, that is a great story. <laughs> I hope it's true. <laughs> I hope it's true, too. But it's a true lie. <laughs> I'm thinking um, I'm Anglican, and we, were fo- we followed the Anglican order, and the reading from the Gospels this week and last were from the Beatitudes. And I, I wonder if there's a parallel there. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. That is a statement about a future reality, right? Not just about a future reality, but they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, oh, blessed, of God, are the, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and it's all of these blessed are who will statements, you know, and I think now the kingdom of God is both present and to come. So I'm not just talking about the kingdom of God as just a future event, a future state of being, but I think that's so interesting that Christ's teaching that he's best remembered for probably Hmm. is a statement with an eye toward um kind of expectation of what 
will be a glorious state and our kind of the behavior that he calls us to in the present is always in light of that future expected state yeah. which to me really resembles the story about the teacher the the expected state is high iq we have capacity in this classroom i am going to act and teach accordingly and the students are going to act or are going to act and learn accordingly yes and so by analogy if we just believe that our students were human right these are these are people made in the image and likeness of right. god who do have the capacity to to love the true, the good, and the beautiful, and will respond to something true because their souls hunger mm -hmm. for truth and are nourished by it. So it, once we believe that, and then so what you're getting at, I think, is so profoundly important to the tradition of teaching, and that is our anthropology. What do you believe a human being mm -hmm. is? And to read Shakespeare is... Shakespeare is in harmony with a deeply human and Christian anthropology. And so we come to understand our humanity again through him. And I love what you say about Christ and the Beatitudes. My wife, Christine, has thought a lot about Beatitude as kind of, you know, that which describes, to her, it's the answer, the Christian answer to virtue ethics. What does it mean to be virtuous, she would say in the Christian tradition, it's to become blessed. Mm. And because that word is also translated happy. Yeah. Happy are those. You know, and Aristotle says, you know, that happiness is the great good that we all seek. Yeah. Uh, and virtue is, a virtuous activity is a means by which we're happy. Well, the Greek word there is makarios. Uh, well, uh, there's eudaimonia, which Aristotle uses, but Aristotle says that only the gods are called makarios. They are blessed in a way that humans cannot be. Uh, yeah. Right? There is a distinction. Uh, humans can know eudaimonia, uh, kind of a happy, good-spiritedness, but the gods are, eudaimo are, are, are makarios. Well, Jesus uses the word makarios. Really? Yeah. Really? So, mm-hmm. He doesn't say eudaimonia yeah. are, are the hungry, are hungry for they shall be filled. He says makarios. In other words, we're becoming most like the divine. Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, God's, God's own state of blessedness begins to characterize his sons and daughters. Yeah. So, you know, Eastern Orthodox tradition, we believe in this. We like to talk about theosis, be, becoming right. partakers of the divine nature. We become, in essence, we're becoming Christ-like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then... To quote Paul, you know, in, in that Second Corinthians 3 passage, as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, looking into his face, uh, we're transformed into his image mm. with ever-increasing glory. So that Christian anthropology seems to just work perfectly well yeah. with, with what you're describing uh, as teaching and, and in the theater. Because when you talk about your relationship with Dan, yeah, you're looking at another image bearer who is imaging forth something to you. Right. You, you said he's empathetic. He's sympathetic. Mm -hmm. He's excellent. He has memorized his lines. He's excellent at his craft. And you see yourself mirrored in him. Right. And you want to be like him, and you start to be like him. And, and, in a way, and it happens without instruction. I mean, That's it just happens point. by him modeling 
what a great, this is what a great actor does. And I, it's like by gravity, you move toward it. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end is that modeling and imitation be so critically important that I think you could say it's a sine qua non. If whatever else you're doing as a great classical educator, if you can't model the virtue, the holiness, the love for the true, the good, and the beautiful, you're just engaging in techniques, right? But it's not going to be perceived as real and human by your students. Well, Tim, thanks so much for uh, this second great conversation. It's, 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 it's just so, so, uh, I, I'm, I'm inspired by you. You and I live in different states, and we've known each other for a long time. But we've never been able to spend an extended amount of time together. But I always walk away from my time with you. And I, even though we don't know each other that deeply, I do have that feeling that I had about Seth. Like, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better teacher. I want to be a better man. So thank you for that. I, I genuinely feel that way. Thank you. Well, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this as well, that seeing uh, the sympathy and love that Tim and I share because of our common commitments to what it means to educate children, to grow, to help them. And I'm sure that's the case with, with so many of you listening or watching today. So thank you for giving some of your time to, to be with Tim and I. Uh, once again, uh, this is a dual episode, meaning uh, presented on the Christopher Perrin Show as well on truenorth.fm.com. And also with on Tim's... Plays the Thing. The Plays It'll the be thing. on the Plays the Thing. Yeah. So thank you, Tim, for this time. And I look forward to seeing you this summer at a future conference. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. Take care. And thanks, everyone, once again, for being here and watching. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching. Thank you.